Thank you for listening to the official podcast of Everyday Church. We are a body of believers in Oklahoma City with the mission to live out our faith on a daily basis. Let's listen in as we hear a powerful message from God's Word. Last week, as we started this brand new series, Religion Ruins Everything, within the message, I asked you to shout out loud a famous person. Remember, we talked about an uber-famous person. And 9.30.11, there were different answers. I don't remember them all, but I, I do remember a couple. Carrie Underwood was mentioned. Jordan was mentioned. Uh, let's see. Oprah was mentioned. Sometimes when you can just say one name and know who they are, you know they're famous, right? They're just like Oprah, Jordan, or Goat. Okay, so th- there are some names out there we all recognize. But the one name that really stood out to me, of course, we, we focused on Katy Perry for a little bit, and we used her as an example. But there was another name that, that really popped that, that made me pause for a second, and that was when, and I remember who said this one, Jonathan threw out Michael Jackson. Now, Michael Jackson, why, why that kind of stuck out to me, these people we all mentioned, they were alive. But when he said Jackson, it's like, he, he dead. Okay, he gone. But he's still very famous, right? Michael Jackson has been dead 10 years. It's just crazy to think about. It means I'm really old. But he died in 2009. Okay, Macy, when were you born? 2006. So she don't, she don't even know who Michael Jackson is, right? She, she doesn't know the goodness of Michael Jackson. Now, when he was alive in his heyday, now he's still famous. Now, you've heard the name, Macy, haven't you? You know who he is. But in his heyday, no one rivaled his popularity. In fact, when I was a, a traveling evangelist, I would go talk and, and I would do different messages and have different themes. But one of the themes that I love to talk about was worship. And I would show this clip of uh, a couple concerts where all these people were at these Michael Jackson concerts and they would be held back until they opened the doors. They'd all run to the front and they'd all lift their hands. Many would be so overcome by emotion that they were weeping and then they would know all the lyrics to the song and they were fully engaged with mind, soul, heart, being. The totality of them were engaged in this worship of Michael Jackson. And I would tell people that it was a beautiful picture of worship. It was just worship in the wrong person. In fact, I had a buddy this week, which is just funny how God does all this. He texts me. He's a pastor near Memphis and said, hey, do you have that old video of the Michael Jackson clip where people were worshiping him? And I said, no, I can't find that. But it was this incredible illustration of people worshiping. It was just in the wrong person. But Michael Jackson was so popular, and you would watch these video clips, and you can see them today. He could go to any country, and people would know who he is. They would know his music, and he was, it was just at the pinnacle of what people would say is fame, success. A lot of you know his music, right? Name me one of your favorite Michael Jackson songs. Thriller, right? Okay, we can all, Thriller was a great one. That's all I'm going to do is that little motion. Okay, Thriller is iconic because of the uh, music video as well. Billie Jean, did I just hear? Yeah, Billie Jean was a great one. You can hear the guitar riff in, in your head right now in the white glove. I think Billie Jean maybe is when that was introduced. I don't remember, but he, of course, Michael had the white glove. Any other songs? Beat It. Smooth Criminal. Yeah, ah, that wasn't mentioned at 930. That was a good one. Man in the mirror, that's my man right there, Matt. Okay, so let's just pause with that one because Matt's got a good heart. And so he's thinking, 
Michael Jackson, he didn't just have crazy songs and soulful songs. He had, like, positive songs. And so we can all remember Man in the Mirror, hopefully. Now, there was this line in Man in the Mirror. See, I used to love that song, and, and I was such a tender-hearted boy. You know, when Michael Jackson was singing Man in the Mirror, I was probably two, and I loved that song. I was probably, like, 22. But it just thought this was such a positive song, and God bless Michael Jackson for putting this out. And there was this one lyric, I want to put it on the screen for you today, that said, and you know it, if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself, and then make it. Yeah, you got to kind of sing it with it, right? Yeah, you got to throw in that falsetto maybe a little bit too. So yeah, then make a change. And you think, there's nothing wrong with that lyric. That's just such a powerful lyric. What's wrong with that? But there is a problem with that line. See, the person in the mirror ultimately can't create the change that is truly needed. The person in the mirror can't create that change. See, even though Michael Jackson was singing the song, hey, if you want to make the world a better place, then just look in the mirror and tell yourself, get better. Make yourself better. Make a change. You just put on your big boy pants and your big girl pants, and you look in the mirror and you tell yourself, I'm going to make a change. Well, sadly, Michael's life didn't play out that way, right? I mean, he had some issues. He, he had some life choices. And I'm sure there were plenty of times MJ looked in the mirror and thought, man, I just want this world to be better. I want to be better. I want to be different. I want to change. And ultimately, it didn't happen for him. I think all of us in this room, we need to grasp today, and those watching via our Facebook Live and those listening to the podcast, that, that when, it, when it comes down to it, yourself isn't good enough. Okay? You on your own can't cut it. You by yourself, you trusting in yourself will never be good enough. But that's not typically how we live. We live thinking we we got enough power within us to control things. We've got enough power within us to create lasting change. Now, the problem with that is that's a religion. That's just the religion of self, trusting in yourself that what's in you is good enough to make a difference, to make that change. But what the scriptures teach us is that the person in the mirror has a problem. See, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things. The thing within you, what beats inside your chest you're, and it's not just the literal heart. It's your who you are as a person is deceitful and, the scripture says, desperately wicked. Not, not just kind of wicked. Not just a little wicked. Desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? So apart from God, apart from Jesus, because of a marred sinful nature, our heart is wicked. It doesn't always do good. It really can't be trusted. I don't know if you've ever lied to yourself. You have. And if you said, no, I've never lied to myself, you're lying to yourself right now. Your heart can't be trusted. We can't trust ourselves. But every religion in the world says, oh, you can be trusted. You can trust your heart, your feelings. You can trust all that. You can do this on your own. Just muster up enough strength. That's what religion tries to teach you. And just so we're clear, as we start this series, we we have this working definition of what a religion is. I want to make sure that we're on the same page because you can Google the word religion. have six billion results, okay? So let's just make sure we know what we're talking about. When I say religion, it is a man-made path to God. 
That is what I'm referring to. I'm not referring to a faith family or doctrine or denominations or a person, a leader, a a spiritual leader. I'm just saying a religion is this man-made effort or path to God. And most of those paths are some sort of do and don't list that if you follow that closely enough, you get the gold star from God. And if it's not that, it's some sort of ritual or some sort of rite that is void of meaning because it it is uh, absent of the spirit of God. Now, why religion ruins everything? Why these man-made paths to God? Because in the simplest form of ideology of this religion, it's arrogance. It's this trust in self. It is this, I can do this. I, I can right this wrong. I can do this all by myself. I can find the power within all on my own. It's a lot of eyes and it's a lot of me's. See, religion is not about God. It's about being good. The focus is not on the supreme being, the intelligent designer, the one true God. What, just let me talk generically for a second. The focus isn't on God. It's focused on me, about me being good enough. See, religion says, I can get to God through my own path, but Christianity isn't a religion. It is not a man-made path to God. Christianity is God coming down to us to make a path for us. Not us making our own path to God. God coming to us to make a path so we can get to him. There's no way we can find our way to God on our own. It is God coming to us and saying, here's the way, here's the truth. Here's the life. This is how you get to me. The Bible puts it this way, talking about Jesus. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. It means he gave up heaven and the privilege of being in his divinity. And he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being, Jesus. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross, yet even though he was perfect and sinless. And so God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, and Jesus died on that cross for all of our sins. And on the third day, he came back to life from the dead. And Jesus coming back to life is showing us God's path, that God came to make a way for us. But we're not gonna find that path if we ignore Jesus and his mission that he came to seek and to save those who are lost. They're thinking, why did Jesus come? Because I can get to God on my own. I don't need what Jesus did for me. I don't need the sacrifice of Jesus because I can just pile up my good works and I will create a way up to God. That is religion, but God says, no, I came to bring you life. And the only way you can have life is a faith and trust in Christ. See, religion brings death when a relationship with God through faith and trust in Jesus brings us true life. Religion is death. It is a dead end. I don't know if you've ever felt like you've hit a dead end. Maybe it's literally you're driving me like, oh, dead end. Kim and I are rewatching The Office. There's a lot of fun. And Michael <laughs> drove into a, a pond one time. He, he's like, well, this is what the GPS says. He hit a dead end, and it was a pond, and he kept going, right? Now, for us, it could be driving or it could be your job. You feel like you've hit a dead end there. Maybe the, the pay scale is like there's no upward movement. I'm stuck here. Maybe it was a relationship. You just felt like it hit a dead end. Maybe it was a, a, a subject in school. At one point, was like, I don't get this. I've had a dead end. Maybe it's been a spiritual. Yeah, Kobe's like, I'm there. I got this big test Thursday. Listen, you haven't hit a dead end, my brother. You're all right. Maybe it's been a pursuit of God and a relationship that you've tried to figure out and you feel like you've come 
to a dead end. I know this week in my prayer life, uh, I was praying about things that are going on and things in my life. And I was just like, God, I'm at an end of myself. I don't know if you've ever said that phrase. I've come to the end of myself. And when I said that in my prayer, I literally prayed that. It wasn't like a suicidal thought. Sometimes you would, you would go to the extreme. And sadly, it, that happens far too often. A prominent pastor killed himself this week. And so even spiritual people aren't exempt from struggling with this. But and I referred to it in my prayer. I've just come to the end of myself. I was saying, God, I, I can't do this. I need you to do it. And if we're going to have any vibrant relationship with God, and if we're going to leave religion behind and move into this relationship, we're all going to have to come to an end of ourselves. Now, if you have a handout today, I want to talk about two areas where we need to come to the end of self. The first one is that we need to come to the end of self-trust. See, our culture, mostly in America, okay, demands that we be successful. There's really no exceptions to that rule, okay? It is put on us from an early age that we've got to be a success. And now, how often is that success measured? Well, most often, success is measured in accomplishment. It's uh, measured in trophies. It's measured by numbers in a bank account. It's measured in stuff possessed or owned. And this isn't just our jobs. It's not just careers. It's not just your portfolio. This begins, I think, even when we're kids on the ball field waiting for our parents to say, atta boy, atta girl, to give us that acceptance or approval because we did something good. We made the catch or we made the tackle or we made the play or we hit the ball. And I think it even goes further back than that when we take our first steps or and maybe more relatable for us today as a parent your kid takes their first step and what are you doing you're cheering you're clapping you're going woo brandy and this isn't a slight towards brandy who's over here was telling me was, was it you that your your boy stood up yes it was that reed was able to stand without falling it's like and it's an accomplishment you want to cheer that but I think sometimes because we do this in every facet of life, even though we want to encourage and we want to help, but I think what is a tendency for us all is to become trapped into the approval of others. That we don't think we matter or we've done anything unless someone says, way to go, a boy, a girl. And we think, okay, there's no way that I can accomplish anything purposeful unless I receive some sort of acceptance or affirmation from others. I think I've got to accomplish something on my own so that I am liked, desired, wanted, appreciated. I think this is deeply rooted in us. And I think the key is that we think it has to be on our own. And we've, we've got to have self-sufficiency and we have to have self-effort to get to the point where we've done something and so that people see us and say, okay, you've become successful. Now your life has purpose because you did something. When you introduce yourself to someone, your identity is typically wrapped up in your job. Hi, I'm John. I'm a pastor. What's the question you use that? What do you do? It's because deep down with us, our culture, listen, you don't know it. It is deeply rooted, is based upon what you do. And so when it comes to the things of God, we don't think it's any different. We, we don't think. It's hard for us to believe that God wants nothing from us. And so we think 
it's too good to be true, and, and that the only way that God would uh, embrace me is if I bring my works to him, my resume, my portfolio, my good deeds. We think, okay, now God will be pleased with me. And so we try to produce the self-effort. We think, look, I did all these good things, God. But God's not interested in that. In fact, the reason we have an Old Testament law was not to say, do all these things so that God is for you. It is to show us you can't do all those things. You're far from accomplishing all those good things. Because every one of us in here, we've messed up. And so the point of the law is to say, there is someone that has done all this right, and it's only Jesus. And God says, I've got a gift for you. And so quit relying and trusting in your own self-effort and trust in, or your, your own self-trust and trust in Jesus. But again, I talk to people, and maybe you've talked with people, and you ask them, how are you going to get to heaven? And I've told you this, if you were to stand before Jesus and said, and he said, why should I let you in? And you say, well, because of good, I'm pretty good. I hear that a lot. I'm a pretty good person. Which is ambiguous. What does that mean? I don't know. But people will say, I'm a pretty good person. But here's the problem with that. Pretty good is not the standard. Perfection is the standard. Complete holiness as Jesus was holy. That's the standard. So if you would fall into that category today and say, well, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty moral person. And I've heard that over and over again. I want to free you today. But let's just see if you meet the standard of perfection. Just even in the New Testament, there's thousands of commands. So let's just kind of grade ourselves this morning and see if we're perfect. Jesus said one time, but I say, this is his command, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Everyone, one for one so far? I got that. I have loved every enemy that I've had. And I have prayed for everyone that has given me a hard time and persecuted me. And maybe you are a Bible scholar and you're like, I have not been persecuted for my faith in Jesus. And I've never had an enemy. I'm okay. All right, well, let's keep going. In Philippians, it says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Two for two? Some of you are like, oh, yeah, I've never worried about a thing. Listen, my wife just took an X on that one, I know. And so, (laughs) and I bet a lot of us in this room could too. Romans 12 says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. None of you had to get even with someone. No, not in here. Someone cut you off and you were fine with it. Someone said something to you and you just let it go. Philippians again says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Always be full of joy. Is that you? Listen, I've been around some of y'all. Y'all weren't full of joy. I can tell you that right now. And you haven't been around me and say, you weren't full of joy either. Touche. Okay, I get it. Matthew 5 says this. Jesus, give to those who ask. Don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Anyone five for five? No. Don't even pretend to be in this room. And there's thousands of others of these commands of Scripture of how to live out this Christ-like faith. None of us on our own can say, we've done this perfectly. And that's the point. None of us 
can reach the standard of perfection. None of us in this room, the only way to end self-trust is to come to the point of brokenness. And that's what brokenness is. It's this acknowledgement. I can't do it. I'm not perfect. If you can't admit that, you will never be broken. You have to be self-aware enough to know that there is a deceitful heart within apart from Christ. And I can't wait to tell you in the next few weeks who you are in Christ, but right now we got to establish we're broken apart from him. Broken people that we don't have confidence in our own ability to manage life. That's what brokenness is. You give up that confidence. I can't do this. I can't live the life that is a a Christ-like life apart from Christ. I can't trust myself to be okay with God and good standing with him on my own. I need to be broken over that fact. I can't do it. Now, if you've ever been in a real-life crisis, and maybe you have, maybe it was medical, maybe it was just a season of life, but if you've ever been in a real-life crisis, you know there's certain situations where you're like, I can't do this. I need supernatural help. I need divine intervention. There's the old saying, there's no atheist in foxholes. It's like a season of life where it's just like, I gotta have God. That's brokenness. It's getting to that point where you realize, I can't do this. I can't make myself right with God on my own. I can't trust in myself to do this. I need help. I need him to do it. So how do we do that? How do we go from this self-trust to this point of brokenness to this point of trusting God? I I want you to write this verse down. There's actually two verses. 1 Thessalonians 5, chapter 5, 23 and 24. You can just write these down and look them up, but they'll be on the screen for you as I read them. This is so important. It says this, now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. Is it scripture? Listen, we get it so backwards. We think we make ourselves holy. No, right now, already, it says, now may the God of peace make you holy in every way. It's not you. Quit trusting yourself. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. How are you going to be kept blameless? Verse 24, God will make this happen. Not you. Not your good deeds. God will make this happen, for he who calls you is faithful. Is what? What is he? Who is he? He's faithful. That's our God. This is so freeing. He's the only one that's going to make you holy. He is the only one that's going to make you blameless. Quit thinking it's you. Trust it in yourself that you're going to do it. You've got to be broken over that. It's only God. That's what it means to trust in him. He's the only one that can do it. But we, we sure think we can. I, I remember I used to live on the south side of town, like south of 240, like that's south. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that's real south side. And, and I saw a meme. I'm going to butcher this because I'm... Sometimes I say things without thinking them, and, uh, and that's a problem. But someone said, I'm from the kingdom of God, but I'm from the south side of the kingdom of God. You know what I'm saying? Like the rough part. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> I did grow up on the south side, southwest 66 in, in western. Today's my mom's birthday, by the way. Happy birthday, mom. Wake up. Okay, there she is. Yeah, she's awake. My dad's back here. So we used to live at southwest 66 in western, and across the street from us, was this house, and it's going to run down, but the, I remember this guy had a bunch of stickers on his car, but one of the bumper stickers said, and I remember thinking, oh, that's pretty cool, God is my what? 
co-pilot, right? So you've seen this before, but man, what a horrific bumper sticker. God ain't nobody's co-pilot, right? You think, oh, what a great witness. It's actually horrible theology. Get him out of the co-pilot seat and put him in the captain's chair, okay? He is the pilot. He's the plane. He's the everything. He is the all in all. God's nobody's second fiddle. That's, God is not co-nothing. He's the man, okay? He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the one true God. God is the pilot. God should not be the co-pilot and say, hey, take me where I want to go. No, so God, what, you take me where you want me to go. Quit trusting yourself. That's selfishness. It's arrogance. Man, take me where I want to go. Like he's your chauffeur. Let's go, Jeeves. <laughs> That's the first driver's name I could think of. That's a pretty good one, though, by the way. Let's go, Jeeves. Chop, chop. That's not God. He's Jesus. Oh, mic drop. Just kidding. Okay, so. Thank you, Josh. I love you. We have to trust in him, not yourself. That's a good one, wasn't it? Come on, Josh. That was like, give me some credit. She's embarrassed. Is she turning red up here? You can see the red forming in her cheeks. Jeeves, Jesus is close. So we have to come to the end of our self-trust. But here's the second dead end, so to speak, the end of self-effort. And these kind of play off of each other, but there is a uniqueness to it. It's not just self-trust. It's also self-effort because there's a big difference between so that and because. The phrase so that and the phrase because are vastly different. Because if you're doing something so that you gain salvation, as opposed to doing something because you have salvation, those are just opposite thoughts. Doing something so that you gain it or doing something because you have it are quite different. You can obey and not love. You can obey and do something, but really not out of a spirit of love. But you can't love without obeying. See, it's not that we obey God to gain anything. We already have it. If we believe in Jesus and we have given our lives to him, we are what we would call saved. We are saved from a life apart from God. We have been saved. We've been rescued. But once we are saved, we obey him, not so that but because we love him. That's why we obey. Not so that, but because. We don't obey, maybe another way to put it is so that we can manipulate him into giving us things, more forgiveness, more blessing, more salvation. No. We obey him because we've been changed. We've been saved. We've been forgiven. We've been freed. We've already been accepted. So we don't do that to earn extra love or acceptance. And so we got to get to a place where we understand our own effort is not enough. It's not good enough to cut it with the king. See, we didn't do anything to attain salvation, so we don't do anything to keep it. You on your own didn't accrue, attain salvation. It wasn't you. It was 
Jesus. So you can't do anything to keep it. I've read this time and time again, but it's so crystal clear. I want to read it again. Ephesians 2 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. Not when you worked for it. Not when you did enough for it. No, you were saved by grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. Why? It is a gift from God. It's just a gift. You didn't deserve it. I don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It's a gift. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. Is that any clearer? Listen, you don't get saved. You don't obtain salvation because of something you've done, a good deed. No, so none of us can boast about it. So that tells us self-effort isn't what saves us. It's God's grace. It's God's power that saves us. So if you and your salvation have anything with your ability to do good, if it has anything to do with your own righteousness, then you're in a religion, not a relationship. If your standing with God has to do on you, you're in a religion, not a relationship. Because our relationship was a gift from God to us, and we just simply accepted it. We put our trust in it. And so even after you accept the gift, you accept unconditional love and forgiveness, don't fall back into this performance trap. And it's easy to do so, right? I mean, there are so many relationships you probably had in your history, in your life, where that person didn't love you unless you did certain things. And that's, that's I hate that for you, but that's not a relationship with God. That's not what that looks like. That's more the business world. That's the performance trap. In the spiritual world, it's quite different. Christianity is not built around performance, but around the person of Jesus and what Jesus has already done on your behalf, which has proved and demonstrated that he loved you even though while we were still sinners, the scriptures teach us. God isn't impressed by you and your performance. In fact, in Isaiah it says, our righteousness is as a filthy rag. And you don't even want to know what that really means. But it's our righteousness is nothing to him. He's not looking at you thinking, oh, you did something good. Man, color me impressed. That's not what God said. He is so pure, so holy. Our, our performance, our righteousness on our own, apart from Christ, is nothing to him. In fact, what the scripture teaches us, and this is so important in Hebrews eleven six, that it is impossible to please God without faith. You're not going to please God by your show of righteousness, your show of being good. That's not going to please God. The only thing that pleases God, and it says it's impossible to please God without faith. The only way to please him is with your good, so to speak. It's faith, but you living out a faith and trust in him. It's all about trust. That's why we sang that this morning. That's what we're talking about. You have to trust in him, not yourself and not your own effort. And your good deeds is trusting in him. But it is easy for us because our whole society is based the other way. And that's why we're just trying to unpack this as clearly as possible. And I will say this. I do think there are seasons of life when we can get so caught back up in who we are and what we're doing. God, I did this. Why aren't good things happening? God, I did this. Why aren't you blessing me? God, I did this. Why didn't I get that grade? Why didn't I get that raise? Why didn't I get that promotion? What are you doing? You're basing it on you. It's not just trust God. 
You're putting it all on you. I did this. I did this. Give me, give me, give me, God. I did this. You're trying to use God as a lucky rabbit's foot, as a superstition, right? You can't argue with me on this one. That's what you're trying to use God as. And so I think sometimes what God does is then he'll allow or cause a difficult situation to enter into your life. A trial, a tribulation, a hardship to try to get you to quit relying on yourself and start trusting in him. You said, well, God, he wouldn't do that. He wouldn't put me in a difficult situation. Maybe you've said or maybe you've heard the phrase, well, God will never give you anything you can't handle or can't bear. There's a Greek word for that. It's called bull honky. (laughs) You don't want me to tell you the Hebrew. (laughs) First Corinthians says this. This is where people get misconstrued. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand or handle. Is he talking about burdens? No. Is he talking about problems? No, he's talking about a temptation. He's not going to let you be tempted to sin without a way out, is what the scripture teaches us. There's always a way out. You do not have to give in to sin. But I'll tell you this, sometimes he gives us hard times and sometimes he gives us trials, even to the godliest of people, so that we turn to him. Quickly, I want to look at one example. Find in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We're going to put it on the screen for you today. And uh, I'll give you time to find it. If you're really like, where do I look, where do I look? It's in the New Testament after 1 Corinthians. Okay, just give you a heads up. 2 Corinthians after 1. All right, so 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I want you to read this. This is Paul and Timothy writing this. So he's going to say we. We think you ought to know, in verse 8 is where I'm going to start. We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. Now, I will tell you, scholars aren't sure exactly what trouble he's talking about because Paul faced a lot of trouble. But he says this, We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure. This isn't just him saying, this is life. We thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die. But as a result, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God who raises the dead. Now, even some of the godliest of people faced troubles and burdens in life. But these were given for a reason. They were God's way of putting an end to self-trust and to self-effort. And so I want to look at his troubles really quickly, specifically Paul and what we can gather here from this passage and Scripture in general. But what we see about Paul's troubles, number one, they weren't predictable. They weren't predictable at all. This man loved Jesus. Now, before he gave his life to Jesus, he, he did not. In fact, he was against Jesus. But he has this encounter with Jesus, changes his life, and he's doing the work of the Lord. Then all of a sudden, pain comes, trouble comes, problems come. We don't know exactly what he's referring to, but in Scripture, we know that he was shipwrecked. He was almost drowned at sea. He's been imprisoned for the gospel on multiple occasions. He was beaten because of the cause of Christ to the point of death, multiple occasions, whipped, um, has back torn up. He went through all kinds of persecution, had to run, had to hide, had to be lowered through a wall. His life was crazy, 
after giving his life to Jesus. His problems weren't predictable. He didn't know, okay, if I do this, it's just, he's living life for Jesus and problems came. Secondly, they were excessive. He had trouble to an extreme degree. Death, disaster, at his doorstep constantly. Again, beaten for speaking God's word. Does that sound like your life? Maybe you got a little bit better. But these were his problems, his trials. Three, they were beyond his strength. Verse eight, what did he say? He phrased it this way. He said, uh, crushed, overwhelmed, beyond our ability to endure. He was quite aware. He had nothing he could do about it. It was beyond him. It was beyond his strength. He was like, God, this, we were at that point, it was beyond anything we could even do. We thought we were going to die. In fact, number four, it caused Paul to despair. He's at the point of desperation. He is at the point of despair. He heard death's feet creeping up on the back porch, sneaking into the house, and he felt like he was on death row, sentenced to die. He said, we expected to die. This man who loves Jesus faced this trial, faced this tribulation. Why? Why would God do that? Have you ever been in that position? You're like, God, what, what's up here? I love you. I'm just following you. I'm trying to do the best that I can. You think maybe my hard work doesn't amount to anything. Well, you're in good company because it happens to a lot of people that love Jesus. You're not exempt. Why did God allow it to happen? Look at Paul's own words. We stopped relying on ourselves and learn to rely only on God who raises the dead. Now, I love the little trump card at the end, who raises the dead. That's the ultimate, like, power play right there. Maybe when your kid said, my daddy can beat up your daddy. All right, and you had that maybe conversation, and you were trying to think of the ultimate power play, the ultimate trump card, how you going to win this? Well, this is it. He raises the dead. <laughs> he got any problem? No, he raises the dead. But man, my problems at work are really tough. He raises the dead. But man, I just got this bad medical diagnosis. This is really, he raises the dead. But you don't know my wife. He raises the dead. It doesn't matter. That card is there. We stop relying on ourselves and learn to rely on God who raises the dead. See, trusting in ourselves is the default in our culture. It's applauded by culture. But God couldn't disagree more. God, what he finds is the weak person irresistible. And write that down. God finds a weak person irresistible. Isaiah 66. And I'll just read you a couple different verses. Isaiah, let's just go Isaiah 66. says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Who's God going to look upon? The one who's humble, contrite, brokenhearted, trembles at my word. That's who God looks to. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is close to who? The brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Who's God going to be close to? The strong, the puffed up, the arrogant, 
He's close to the brokenhearted. James 4, 6. He gives grace generously, as the scriptures say. God opposes the who? The proud, but gives grace to the humble. God finds a weak person irresistible. Why else would Jesus say this? I tell you the truth. Unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you'll never get into the kingdom of heaven. See, being like a child, being brokenhearted, being humble, all of those say, I depend on you, God, for everything. Not just my salvation, which is key, but living out my salvation is still all on you, you and me. I depend on you. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He says, you want into the kingdom of heaven, turn from your sin, have a childlike faith, trust in me, depend on me. I'll tell you this as a parent. My hardest battle and hardest hurt is when my child doesn't trust me. Hey, trust me, baby. Trust me, son. Don't do this. It's not good for you. And then they do it anyway. Or there's an irrational fear. Hey, baby. Hey, son. Trust me on this. You don't need to be afraid of this. It's going to be okay. And then they're scared out of their mind. That hurts me more than anything. Because they're saying, I don't trust you. And that's hard. What do you think God does when he's like, hey, I got this. Lean into me. Trust in me. Like, no, no, no. I want to do it my own way. I'm going to do it this way. Or I don't think you're good enough, God. Or I don't think you love me enough, God. Or I don't think you're for me enough, God. And you would never say those words, right? But what about your heart? What about your actions? What do they say? You go do your own thing. You go do your own way. You go try to make it on your own. And you don't trust him. You're just saying, I don't trust you, Dad. I don't trust you, Father, that you know what's best for me. That you have my best in mind. That's what it says. Back to God. And so my challenge for you today is quit being an adult. And start being a kid. That doesn't mean uh, you quit paying bills and have someone else dress you in the morning. Okay, I'm not going crazy talk here. What I'm saying is your faith needs to be less adultish and more childlikeish. Where you say, God, I can't do this without you. I'm sick of trying. Take over. Lead me. Now listen, first it's your salvation. You can't, get to, you can't get to God on your own. You need Jesus, a faith in Jesus, that gift. But then once you put your faith and trust in Jesus, that doesn't stop. You keep trusting him with the rest, your life. I'm a follower, Jesus. You have what's best for me. I lean into you. I follow you. And as a child, that doesn't mean you just sit. It just means you move forward, trusting God that he's got you. There are seasons that bring me great joy when my kids do trust me. And they do avoid the thing I want them to avoid because, all right, Dad, you know what's up. Or they overcome the thing that I want them to overcome because they trust. There's so much joy in that. This week, Start putting that into practice where you can have a lifetime pattern where you say, God, I trust you. You're good. You're great. You're perfect. It's not about me. It's about you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment as we wrap up?
in the room today, and I really want in this series you guys to be bringing people that don't, you don't know if they know Jesus or not. And so since I don't know everyone in the room, and I think that's a good thing, every week I don't want to know everyone in the room. You hear me with that? I don't want to know everyone in the room every week. And you need to help me not know everyone in the room every week. And since I don't know everyone, I want to give you the opportunity today. If you would say, you know what? I've never put my faith in Jesus. I've tried it on my own. I thought my good deeds were enough. But today you realize it's not about your good. It's about the good of Jesus. He already paid the price for you. And you want to accept that gift today of grace. Would you pray in your heart something like this? Now you need to mean this. You need to say something like, God, I do admit I have sinned. I know I'm not perfect. I have fallen short of perfection. I admit that. But right now, I believe, I believe in you, that Jesus died for me, rose again, is the Son of God. I believe. So come into my life and forgive me of my sins. Every sin, the past ones, the present ones, the future ones, forgive me of sin. Be my boss, be my master, be my savior. And even though I don't understand it all, I commit to follow you. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm in. I believe. No one looking around. That's, that's grace. You didn't deserve it, and I didn't deserve it. And I still don't deserve it, but it's a gift. And if you gave your life to Jesus, you're a brand new person today. You are now had a new birth, and you are now a child of God. And so when no one looked around, if you prayed that prayer for the first time and meant it, would you slip your hand up and say, that's me. I prayed that, and I really meant that I gave my life to Jesus, okay? And so as a church, we want to be here for you. And so, Father, help us as a faith family live that out, too, that we would live out a genuine trust in you. Not just for salvation, that's obviously key. But, Lord, how we live out this faith, a trust in you, too. You are good, perfect. And we submit to you. In your name we pray. Amen. This is Pastor John. Thank you so much for listening to the Everyday Church Podcast. For more information on us or if you happen to make a spiritual decision during this message, please let us know and go to our website, www.everyday.church. There's an email link that you can click on and we would love to hear from you if there's anything going on that has happened during this message, if the Lord has spoken to you or you made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Also, if there's a prayer request or concern, then you can email us and we would love to take the time to pray for you and respond in any way that we can. Again, thank you so much much for listening. God bless.